Welcome to Challenging Climate, a podcast where we discuss the science, technology, and politics of climate change. I'm Jesse Reynolds, an environmental policy expert. And I'm Pete Irvin, a climate scientist. Each episode, we bring on a guest with a unique perspective and deep expertise on climate change and put challenging questions to them. In this episode, we spoke with Dr. Arnaba Ghosh of the Council on Energy, Environment, and Water, which is based in India. And my motivation for inviting Dr. Ghosh is not only is he a, um, an extremely sharp thinker whose work covers a wide range of issues, but I thought it was important to bring to the foreground like something of a, of a case study of a developing country and how its economy, society, policies, and politics are responding to the uh, sustainability and development challenges of the 21st century. Arunaba did an absolutely fantastic job of giving us that tour. It was a, a tour de force, really, of, you know, what is the state of India, how varied and complicated it is, how it's rising to the various challenges uh, that climate change brings. And um, yeah, some of the challenges they still face and, and some of the ways in which he's hopeful that, that they'll be tackled in the future. Uh, fantastic conversation. Um, I hope you enjoy yeah, it's. I found it to be both impressive and, uh, to use a, a word that's sometimes abused, quite inspiring to learn the way in which a country like India, which not so long ago was struggling with very widespread, very deep poverty, has turned a corner and is developing rapidly in the face of these environmental and sustainability challenges. So we bring you Dr. Ghosh. Dr. Arunaba Ghosh is an international public policy expert, author, columnist, and institution builder. He is the founder and CEO of the Council on Energy, Environment, and Water, and has led the Council to the top rank as one of Asia's leading policy research institutions and among the world's 20 best climate think tanks. He's the co-author and or editor of four books and with expertise in 45 countries. He has previously worked at Princeton, Oxford, the UN Development Program, and the World Trade Organization. Arunaba, welcome to Challenging Climate. Hi, Jesse. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Great. So let's just begin to get a sense about what the Council on Energy, Environment, and Water uh, does. How does. What's its scope of activities? Uh, what's its mandate? And, and what's sort of a, a sample of, of, of a month in the Council? What's that look like? Uh, your last question is harder to answer, but uh, we uh, we like to say that we use uh, our data, integrated and interdisciplinary analysis and strategic outreach to explain and change the use, reuse and misuse of resources. Uh, in, in August 2022, we're returning 12 years old as an independent policy research institution. But really, when we think about what is the scope of our work, we divide it up into the here and now challenges as well as the long-term challenges. For a country like India, when we were set up uh, issues of energy access, um, millions of households not having even a wire of electricity coming into their homes or the lack of access to cooking energy, these were here and now challenges uh, on which we worked on quite significantly. But also here and now challenges are also about the, the growth of renewables, 
and the shift towards a cleaner energy system. But as we look out into the medium and long term, we also have extensive work around modeling low carbon pathways for India, uh, as well as several states within India. We look a lot at what we call industrial sustainability and competitiveness. So we look at the harder to abate sectors. Uh, and then we are uh, also very much focused on climate risks to see not just an adaptation in a slow boom way, but what are the tail end events that we should be preparing ourselves against. And in doing all of this, we bring technology, trade issues, development issues, and we have dedicated center for energy finance, which monitors the market, but also develops financial products that helps to crowd in uh, a, a lot of investment into the energy transition. Arnaba, can you give us a sense of some of the recent activities of the council and perhaps describe a couple of outputs, activities that, that, that you've worked on in the last few months? You know, Jesse, we at CW work across all levels of governance, from the international level of negotiations all the way down to village level interventions, all on the back of uh, our own data, our analysis, and our outreach. Uh, so let me give you a, uh, an idea of some of the things that are happening on the ground, and then I'll come to the international level. We've recently released a, a document called A Rooftop Solar for Every Home in India a guidebook to organize local solarized campaigns. Now, even though we are not a campaigning organization, we are a research organization, uh, we try to make sure that our research can be taken to action. One of the challenges with the renewable energy transition is going to be the limited land availability. And therefore, we have to think about not just the technical idea around rooftop solar, but actually come up with business models that appeal to different classes of society, people with different economic backgrounds, people with different credit history, people in very differently designed cities. So we have designed business models in collaboration with power distribution companies to have distributed clean energy on rooftops for all sorts of customers, those that we call who are the creditless, those basically who have a roof over their heads but don't have sufficient credit history. Then those who we call the roofless, so those who might have credit histories but live in apartment buildings and don't own their own roof. And then we say, you know, uh, community solar models for all. So the latest uh, report uh, actually talks about creating that kind of a peer-to-peer-based solarizing campaign for community rooftop solar installations that draw on the social capital of the community and result in a manner in which you can plan, design, manage, and execute such a campaign. The campaign framework involves not just the conceptualization of the, or the broad idea, but actually how you take it out into the community and execute it to give an example, around the time of the pandemic, we were actually running a campaign using such business models in, some, in one of the poorest parts of Delhi to get communities to understand what the technology was, but also together co-create the business model by which they would own the system or the system would be owned by the distribution company and they would be paying on a, what is called the on-bill financing model. This is just, I, I don't want to get into the details, but really it's its about how do you get granular in bringing the energy transition closer to people. Let me give another example. We have a program which we call Powering Livelihoods, 
which leverages the opportunity in using distributed renewables for livelihood activities in rural areas. Our estimation is that this is a $53 billion investment opportunity in a country like India, a $12 billion investment opportunity in, a, in sub-Saharan Africa, large investments are possible in Southeast Asia. Now, having done that as research, we actually decided to test our hypothesis. So we created a $3 million program that supports in a financial and in a technical way, six startups that use distributed clean energy for livelihood activities. These could include solar-based textiles, milk chilling in solar irrigation pumps, solar-based uh, hydroponics to grow green fodder for cattle. Uh, that alone, by the way, is a $4 billion market in India. Um, now, as we are developing these business models and supporting these startups, we are already seeing the beneficiaries who are turning out to be their own micro-entrepreneurs. So someone then buys such a product and then sets up their own milk-chilling business. Only two, three days ago, uh, rural Rajasthan went all the way down to South India and Bangalore and delivered this incredibly powerful speech about how her whole milk-chilling business has completely transformed by adopting these technologies. But then when we talk about technologies, there's the other end altogether. For many years, we've been at the forefront of working on the hydrogen economy in India. Uh, we've been deeply involved in writing up the technical notes that went into the national green hydrogen mission. But when we look at this internationally, we see there are dozens of countries, by our count, 39 countries plus the EU that have programs on hydrogen. And yet the market is suboptimal because we are not creating a bridge not just of technology and finance, but of rules, of standards, of protocols. Uh, so our work on green hydrogen is looking not just down to a district level in India where you have the most optimal potential to generate renewables and manufacture green hydrogen, but all the way up to the international geopolitical level of making sure you have an architecture for energy security when it comes to a new industrial fuel. Just a sample of the kind of work we do. That's uh, certainly an impressive breadth and depth of work that you do at the council. And moving a bit into more broad issues, what, what I think would be useful to think about and to talk about is that most of our listeners are based in industrialized countries, based upon the, the, the stats that we can see online. And the council and you are doing essential work in a key major emerging economy. Can you give us a sense whether, and if so, how uh, the environmental issues facing the developing world, and in India in particular, are different from those in industrialized countries? In some ways, the environmental issues are not different because they are consequences of the economic development trajectories that countries have gone through. It is, of course, desirable to maintain the integrity of a biodiverse region or to have environmental flows in a river. And yet the first time, even, even if it's the cleanest plant that you set up on the shores of a river, you know there will be a degree of pollution. And that then creates a tension, uh, a genuine tension and a trade-off between preserving pristine environments while pursuing industrial development. When you add to that densely populated regions, then there's a third dimension that comes in, which is the rights of the community the people living there. Now, that might not always be the same story in at least parts of the developed world, which have a lot of land and few people. 
But where the distinction really begins to emerge is that we cannot any longer follow the traditional Kuznets curve of, you know, pollute first and clean up later after you've reached a certain level of development. Not because of international agreements, not because of pressure from environmental NGOs. It's simply because we are facing the brunt of global environmental crises, not local environmental challenges. And that we will have to chart and create a pathway of development that the developed countries have not done so. So this is not about finger pointing, but it's the one thing that needs to be internalized is that we do not have any lessons to learn in a way from the kind of meta developmental narrative that the advanced economies of today have to offer. Of course, we have a lot to learn in the micro aspects of technology development, of investments, of finance, of business models, and so forth. But the meta-narrative has to be completely different. And that meta-narrative is that we have to pursue a seeming impossible trinity of jobs, of growth, and of sustainability, but simultaneously. That meta-narrative also has to acknowledge that we have to focus what are now in technical terms called tail-end risks. Because these are risks that might have low probability today, but have high impact. The pandemic was a tail-end risk. Rising climate risks are tail-end risks. Now, for developing countries like India, these two fundamental pillars of a new meta-narrative are not ones that we can draw from the advanced economies. We have to create our own pathways of jobs, growth, and sustainability while becoming resilient against these planetary level shocks. Along those lines, that trinity that developing countries such as India must pursue is in the context of the necessary energy transition that's unfolding now and needs to continue over the upcoming decades as the world bends the curve toward net zero emissions. This creates a, a sometimes challenging relationship between what's sometimes called the global north and the global south, because emissions are rising in the global south relatively rapidly as these countries develop, which is, of course, to be praised for a multitude of reasons. But as emissions rise, they may come under increasing pressure to keep their emissions under control. So in what ways does the global north have a role, such as in finance? and technology transfer to catalyze the energy transition in India and elsewhere? Well, the first thing I would want listeners in the global north to internalize is that we will not go through one, but several energy transitions simultaneously. In the global north, access to energy itself is not in question. It is now a question of a shift from dirty to cleaner energy. Whereas in the global south, there are still more than 700 million people without any electricity at all, 2 billion people without any access to modern cooking fuels at all. So the first energy transition is the shift from no access to modern energy to access to some forms of modern energy. Simultaneously, the global south is also a rapidly urbanizing part of the world. India is the fastest urbanizing country in the world. And therefore, patterns of energy demand, which are familiar to the global north, are not yet the kinds of patterns of energy demand in the global south. But as we rapidly urbanize, it's how we build our buildings, how we organize our transport, how compactly we, we organize our urban communities. That's another energy transition. 
The third energy transition is that the global south will now become the driver of global energy markets. That was not the case in the 20th century. So how do we engage with global energy markets, both as energy takers, but also rule makers? And the final energy transition that we'll all go through is that, as I was saying earlier, that we have to develop our economies and transform our energy systems within a shrinking carbon constraint. So these multiple transitions require different kinds of partnership and assistance from the global north. I would not like to use the phrase technology transfer because the history of energy suggests there has been no technology transfer. I have analyzed dozens of so-called energy initiatives between the global north and the global south, and there is no technology transfer. Instead, we need a new paradigm, which we call technology co-development, that we need to now bring together our resources, financial, human, technical, our markets. Our markets are actually far larger than that in the global north, if we look at the next few decades, and pool those resources together to co-create, co-develop, and co-own, thereby overcoming the challenges of intellectual property, the emerging energy technologies of the future. Equally, when it comes to finance, yes, for instance, providing basic minimum access to energy for all across the global south will require a fair degree of concessional finance, just like India did, providing its own fiscal resources as concessional finance to connect 28 million households within three years, bringing the household electrification rates to nearly 98%. Now that has to play out at a global level. But it's not just about concessional finance. It is actually about hard investment. And as I've said on many forums before, it is a puzzle to me why money does not flow where the sun shines the most. Because Economics 101 teaches you that capital should go from capital-rich regions to capital-poor regions, and labor should go from labor-rich regions to labor-poor regions. So why is capital, at least green capital, circulating only in capital-rich regions when the largest markets and the sunniest countries are all in the global south? And this, of course, there are reasons, and we can all come up with dozens of reasons not enough projects, not enough investable projects, not enough guarantees of risk, etc. But to me, these are not insurmountable problems. If we can send man to moon, we can certainly figure out how to get a dollar to give better return on investment in India than in Pittsburgh. And unfortunately, that is not happening. I have just come back from Cambodia, where I am the UN Special Rapporteur for its transition away from least developed country status. Just across the street from the Ministry of Commerce is a Tesla showroom. This is a least developed country. This is a country trying to leapfrog to an electric mobility system. Is there any institutional investor in London or in New York thinking about Cambodia as an electric mobility investment destination? My guess would be no. My team is working in Vietnam, where it's built it, where it has, it has posted some of the fastest growth rates in renewables deployment in recent years, and yet it does not appear on institutional investors' radars. So what we are trying to figure out is how do we build a resilient enough grid that can transmit the electricity from where it is being produced to the different parts of the country where the urban conglomerations lie. Now, that is where the change is happening. In India, to answer your earlier question, we now, in the last few weeks, have had 
the state with the largest coal resources in the country. 27% of India's coal resources lie in one state. And the chief minister of that state came forward and announced a solar policy in July uh, this year, calling for a shift from current deployment of 88 megawatts of solar to 4,000 megawatts of solar by 2027. Now, none of these headlines, Cambodia, Vietnam, Jharkhand State in India, none of this is getting a headline in the Financial Times or the Wall Street Journal or the Guardian. But this is where the energy transition is underway. This is where the energy transitions are underway. And I would only ask that your listeners have a more informed debate and deliberation on this transformation and energy revolution that is going on, and then figure out how best to participate. Another kind of economic issue that seems particularly challenging in developing nations is that of fossil fuel subsidies. Um, I believe that CEEW just recently released a report saying that they'd risen by nine times since 2019 in in India. How should those be addressed? Um, Do they need to be slashed as quickly as possible to stimulate the economy to shift to a different way? Or do we need to keep them for as long as possible to help the poor get by? No, exactly. You've already answered your question in a way. The point about any kind of subsidy is that it has to be just and targeted. So the justice behind subsidy is that there are certain basic needs that have to be catered for, even as we have the sustainability transition. But it only serves that justice purpose if it is targeted enough to the households that need those basic needs. So when we look at increasing in fossil fuel subsidies, it's also linked to the global prices of you know, the imported crude or the imported natural gas, et cetera. But is it getting better targeted? Certainly. If you think about about three or four years ago, when the prime minister announced a nudge campaign called Give It Up, it was a hashtag Give It Up. It was basically a call out for rich households that were you know, benefiting from cooking fuel subsidies to simply give up the subsidy. And within a year, 10 million households gave up their subsidies. That then gave the confidence to also do the subsidy reform from a policy perspective. So not just as a nudge strategy, but also policy perspective. That then releases upwards of $1 or $2 billion that can be redirected for the subsidies that are needed for the poor. The same applies to you know, a range of whether it's, it's power subsidies. Now, power subsidies, you need a baseline level of power consumption. But of course, if they're inefficiently delivered or they have to support larger farmers rather than the small and marginal farmers, of course, then those corrections are needed. In fact, just a few days ago, again, the prime minister has called for power distribution companies to seriously rethink their subsidy structures. And of course, there's an element of what the state governments, just like the United States, India, the federal polity. So what the central government nudges need not always be what the state governments follow through with. So there is a process towards that subsidy reform. But I don't think this is a binary of fossil fuel subsidies today and overnight it disappears. The related question then is, can we also be looking at the market making part of the clean energy transition? And that is where I think India was fairly smart in the use of subsidies on the renewable side. For instance, we did not really go down the feed and tariff route for solar because eventually governments run out of money to spend, you know, the fiscal deficit starts creeping up. So right from the outset of the National Solar Mission, 
uh, there were reverse auctions, something that Southern Europe did not try. So when Southern Europe ran out of cash, suddenly renewables deployments slowed down there. Whereas in India, I remember the benchmark tariff in 2010 was upwards of 18 rupees. And then it kept coming down, round by round of auctions, it kept coming down, that we've been able to use policy signals and market design to drive down the prices of renewables, increase competition, wherein the some of the lowest quoted prices of solar are now at 1.99 rupees. That's less than three US cents or less than two US cents. So the point here then is how do you subsidize the network infrastructure? The green energy corridors for the transmission, our latest green hydrogen mission has an embedded policy that says if you transport renewables from a renewables-rich state to another province where you want to produce the green hydrogen, then that transmission charge is completely waived off, something that the European rules on hydrogen don't accept. So subsidies is not just always about the end consumer kind of handout. It's also how you deploy it strategically to create markets where none existed. And by doing that smartly, we managed to create a market for renewables, which is going to be at least $200 billion of investment in this decade, a market for green hydrogen, which will be somewhere in the $100 to $170 billion of investment in this decade, a market for electric mobility that will be somewhere in the order of about $206 billion in this decade, and so on and so forth. So subsidies are public policy, and these are shaped by politicians, and as, as a in the briefest of introductions to Indian politics for our listeners, the current Prime Minister Modi is of the, uh, the BJP, the Indian People's Party, which is right of center and a bit, uh, I suppose, it's in the Western press, at least it's characterized some, uh, somewhat a bit nationalist. And the left of center parties are quite scattered at the moment among quite a large number of them. And I'm curious how these issues of energy subsidies climate change more generally, and even sustainability, how they map out onto Indian politics. Because here, here in the West, we're familiar with the sort of left-right split on environmental issues where the left tends to push the environmental issues more. Is that the case in India or is it more uh, transpartisan? I think there is certainly a fairly, in India, we can't say bipartisan because we've got many, many parties in, in parliament and in the state legislatures. But there is very much a multi-party consensus that the climate crisis is not just something that's going to happen, but very much a here and now issue. We had parliamentary debates on climate risks, partly based on CW research in the winter session of parliament uh, as soon as the Glasgow conference ended uh, last year. In broad terms, we don't have climate deniers. However, the approach towards the climate crisis might vary from state to state, as we were discussing earlier, in terms of this, you know, state's economic structure. To give an example, if you are the state of Gujarat in the west of the country, which is also a major industrialized state, there you already have, you know, the world's largest refinery, but you also have immense amounts of renewables getting generated. And some of the largest corporations based there have been making big announcements around the manufacturing of electrolyzers for green hydrogen and so forth. So there it becomes, the, the clean energy transition becomes also about you know, industrial strategy in a way. But if I flip across to the other side of the country and I look at a state like Bihar, where you have a much more agricultural economy, 
There, the clean energy, the, the low carbon transition has to be anchored in what an agricultural strategy can also be, in addition to, of course, what industrial strategy, urbanization strategy can be. If I look at a state just south of Bihar, Jharkhand, which has 27% of India's coal reserves, so the largest, I mean, the, the state with the largest coal reserves, I was there just uh, four weeks ago when the chief minister, um, the equivalent of the governor in the US, announced Jharkhand's solar policy, where it has 88 megawatts of solar today, looking to go to 4,000 megawatts of solar by 2027. That's 4,100% increase in the state that has the largest coal reserves. But there, the solar revolution will be very different because it will require a lot more distributed energy deployment because of the nature of the topography and the and the density of the population. So the, I mean, the plans include deployment of solar on ponds inside thermal power plants. Like every little place, every canal you can find, there'll be solar deployed. And then if I come down south, I look at a state like Andhra Pradesh, where uh, which is along the coast, uh, the eastern seaboard, which gets buffeted by cyclonic storms on an annual basis. It's also the state where the world's largest experiment on natural farming is going on. Um, more than 800,000 farmers practicing a completely different style of sustainable agriculture and agroforestry to grow more sustainable crops. And right next door, Telangana is a hub for electric mobility and battery manufacturing. So my point is that once you have that multi-party internalization that we have a climate crisis on our hands, the response will still vary by the economic structure of states. Now, and therefore, you get a sort of some version of a competition also between states about who can attract more investment. But does that mean all states are thinking only through a climate lens? Certainly not. As I said, the lens is about jobs, growth, and sustainability. And then some states are doing better than others, and, and others will see the value in a new climate economy. So India is a remarkable country. It's it's the world's largest democracy by quite a margin, 1.4 billion people in a type of a federal system. I'm curious to what extent environment and climate and energy issues translate down to the level of electoral politics. Is this the type of thing that motivates voters as we see with interest groups getting out the votes, for example, in the UK? Or is it more a feature that's uh, or a process that here I live in the Netherlands, it's sometimes called corporatism. So it's not so much about corporations, but the idea that the major interest groups in society can, the unions, the, the government, uh, the NGOs and the businesses can sit down and, and come to a compromise around issues where there's, at least in the case of India, as you describe it, a shared basis of knowledge that climate change is real and it's a problem and, and India must respond in, in multiple ways. Does climate and energy translate to electoral politics? Energy certainly translates into electoral politics. Uh, there's often a slogan that is used in a lot of hustings and campaigns called, in, in, in Hindi, it is called Bijli Sadakpani, means electricity, roads, and water. It, uh, and then in other places, it will be Roti Kapra Makan, means food, clothing, shelter. So these are, you know, you can think of sort of almost a Maslowian, you know, hierarchy of needs. So once you've got food and clothing and shelter, you look at the next level of needs of, you know, I need electricity, I need, I need roads to get my produce to market, uh, I need water. 
So this has been going on for decades. This is not just about climate change. But what has happened in recent years is that we've gone from sort of marginal plays on, you know, a few more households get electricity, et cetera, to now everybody needs to have at least access to electricity, a wire has to come in. So within about three years, 28 million households got a wire for the first time. So our own estimation, CW conducts the largest surveys on energy access in the world. And our own surveys reveal that about 97.6% of the households are now connected to a wire. Or that the penetration of clean cooking energy, which has a strong gender dimension to it, because otherwise women end up using, you know, cow dung or, or twigs or leaves, et cetera, as cooking fuel, which has a major indoor air pollution uh, problem. Or within a few years, we, uh, in, the last, uh, in the last half decade, we saw that the penetration of clean cooking fuel, what is called liquefied petroleum gas, went from just over 50% of households to over 80% of households. Now that is, then you get, you know, you get votes on the basis of that because you, you know, you have, you have this massive push towards energy infrastructure. Now let's come to the other side of it, which is that is that climate also driving some of this. And I would argue it's a combination of what you described in academic terms, Jesse, of the corporatism, which again, you know, we should clarify is not about corporations, but about people who get it and interest groups that get it and can negotiate and welfareism. And what's the welfareism part of this? Welfareism part of this is that our agricultural sector that still employs the maximum number of people in the country is at the pun intended, the coal face of the climate crisis. Water is our weakest link. That's 60% of our agriculture. And, and we are a food secure country. We are a food exporter. Yet 60% of our agriculture and upwards is actually rain fed. So the climate variability that I was referring to earlier is really where you need to then have a nub on pulse of what is happening on the ground. And you cannot be a district official, a district administrator who can ignore the climate crisis literally on a cropping season by cropping season basis. So you do you have crop insurance? Do you have farmer's insurance? Do you have ability to deliver water when suddenly there's an extreme drought or an extreme heat wave? These will also, that welfareist part will also dictate a politician's equation. But also on the flip side, you have a realization that additional growth, additional jobs will come from a shift towards sustainability. And that's why the largest corporations in the country, including those that have significant interest in fossil fuels, have declared tens of billions of dollars of investment over this decade for a shift towards clean energy. Because they see that this is where the future lies. And then in between these two is this vast space of what I, what I call the micro, small, and medium enterprises. We've got 63 million of them, or in the US are called small businesses mom and pop shops. Now, how do you have an energy transition of 63 million businesses? And many in peri-urban and rural areas. So at CW, we estimate that using distributed clean energy for livelihood activities in rural areas alone is a $53 billion market in India. So there is a massive fortune at the bottom of the pyramid. And based on some of the interventions we have done helping startups in the space, 
India now is the first country in the world that has come out with a policy on using distributed clean energy for livelihoods. So you then see that this political economy is the combination of welfareism and safety nets for those facing the climate crisis, the corporatism around you know the jobs, growth, investment uh, story for big clean infrastructure, but also this new market that's emerging for the millions, literally millions of small businesses. Now, is this all happening overnight? Certainly not. Is this always visible? Not always. But is the direction of travel set? Certainly. And one needs to understand and unpack this political economy to recognize and internalize and invest in this in these emerging opportunities. India is a clearly a rapidly changing society, rapidly changing economy. And a common theme on our show on this podcast that's emerged is the balance between pessimism and optimism. And to conclude our conversation, I'm curious, to what extent are you optimistic? What gives you optimism about the future and India in particular? Well, I mean, it's one, of course, is, you know, I am often asked, am I pessimistic or optimistic? And I wouldn't be, wouldn't be doing my job uh, or being involved in running CEW if I did not believe that a different future were possible. But I draw optimism from two things. One, just the pace at which the transformation has unfolded, at least in the 12 years that CW has been around. I can see that it's not just political speeches, but followed with policy announcements, followed with deployment. So we, as I described earlier, going from less than 20 megawatts of solar in 2010 to 55,000 megawatts of solar 155,000 megawatts of non-fossil electricity capacity. That's a huge transformation, but also access to energy for the first time for millions of households. Also looking at the, the future in terms of green hydrogen, et cetera, that's coming through. So it's that is a top-down story. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited of having been part of that story unfolding, about not just moving the needle, but really nudging in a completely different direction. But I'm also excited by what happens on the ground. And that's why when I crisscross the states and we have teams working across the country, you see really amazing innovations in policy, in business models. We work with power utilities that are now developing business models to deploy rooftop solar for households that don't even own their property. We've, as I described to you, this massive opportunity in the rural economy. I'll give you an example of one man, uh, his company we are supporting. He was a farm laborer, came to uh, Delhi to work as a rickshaw puller. At about 15, 18 years ago, he had an accident, so could not even do that. Went back to his home village, has no formal education. He invented a machine that can process all sorts of agricultural produce using an efficient motor and renewables and renewable energy. And he now has this startup and he is selling uh, these machines to other micro entrepreneurs. I came across a farm laborer a decade ago in southern India, and, and he had a tiny, in, on top of his thatched roof, inside his hut, uh, inside a forest, he had a little solar panel, which at that time would have cost him $400, something someone without any collateral could not have afforded. And I asked him, why did you take a loan of $400 to put one, th- one solar panel? And he said, you know, before, before solar... Uh, I was using kerosene for lighting. 
And uh, I have uh, two white shirts. Um, that was the extent of his clothing that it was that he had. I uh, said my white shirts were getting dirty with kerosene fumes. And I was spending 50 rupees a month. At that time, it was $1 on detergent powder. And after deploying the solar panel, I'm spending 20 rupees a month on detergent powder. Now, that story is from a decade ago. But in this past decade, as India's macro renewable story has catapulted, I'm yet to meet an investment banker or a venture capitalist or a private equity player in Mumbai or in London or in Shanghai or in Wall Street who has developed a renewables financing model based on cost savings on detergent powder. But it illustrates that the transformation that's happening is really a combination of the top-down and the bottom-up. That just because you're on the margins of the economy or margins of society doesn't mean you are only an object of someone else's policy. You can very much be a subject and agent of the change that we're seeing unfold. This has been Dr. Arnab Ghosh of the Council on Energy environment and water. Dr. Ghosh, thank you for joining us on Challenging Climate. Thank you. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you, Pete. You can find more information on the council on the web at ceew.in. Well, thanks for listening. Please rate or review us on Apple Podcasts and elsewhere and consider supporting us on Patreon. That's page slash Challenging Climate.